Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Each week we discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site. We can be found at the NevadaIndependent.com. I'm joined today by two of our reporters, Megan Messerly and Michelle Rendell. Say hello. Hey, John. Hi, John. Welcome. Uh, it's been another busy week. Uh, we're still uh, recovering in almost every sense of the word from the horrific events of, of the 1st of October. Uh, we are recording this podcast shortly after uh, uh, the sheriff, uh, uh, as I've never seen him, Joe Lombardo, was very emotional during a, a news conference. I think uh, you watched the, uh, that a, a, as well as I did, Megan. What what did we learn out of that news conference? Yeah, well, first of all, like you mentioned, you know, Sheriff Joe Lombardo has been the public face in the wake of this horrible tragedy coming out doing these press conferences. And I think today really was the most shaken that we've seen him. You know, he, we know that he's been frustrated with the, with the investigation, not knowing the motive, you know, but at the same time proud of what his officers and department and all the other law enforcement agencies were able to do. Um, but today he just his voice was really shaky and you could tell the the emotion um you know was really getting to him and obviously he and his department have done you know hours and hours of work and a great job over the last couple of weeks now but like you mentioned the big question on everyone's mind this week has been that timeline the press conference earlier this week sheriff lombardo sort of revised timeline he said throughout the course of this investigation details are changing you know we want to be as transparent with you as we can so we're going to give you updates as we have them but at the same same time, this information is changing. It's a developing investigation. So things are going to change. It's not because we were wrong, but we're getting more and more information. So we got this updated timeline earlier this week in which the sheriff said that the security guard um, who had gone up to go check on the 32nd floor had uh, encountered the suspect at 9.59 p.m. and that the shooting didn't begin until 10.05 p.m. So it raised all these questions this week about what happened in those six minutes. Why why was there six minutes? Um, you know, what was the suspect doing at that time? Um, you know, MGM Resorts has put out some statements addressing this. You know, they put out a statement saying that they disagree with the timeline, um, that they believe that the encounter between the security guard and the suspect happened in close proximity to when the suspect began firing upon the crowd. Um, and so today, that was the big question on everyone's mind going into this press conference is, you know, are we going to get an update on the timeline? And we did. And um, essentially, Sheriff Lombardo said, you know, the 959 time, you know, th th that was an accurate time, but related to something else. And he essentially agreed with MGM's version of things that the that when the security guard was shot and when the shooting began on the crowd happened in very close proximity as well. So that was sort of the big revelation that we got out of it. Yeah, essentially what the sheriff said, and before we go on with this, I do want to just let people know uh, that, that MGM Resorts is the largest donor to, to the Nevada Independent, just disclose that just so people know. But clearly MGM Resorts, which has different interests at this point than than Metro. Metro wants to get to the bottom of this. MGM Resorts is obviously concerned about a lot of things, including liability. There's already been talk of lawsuits being filed. They put out two separate statements. Uh, I think they were both this week. Out the time is running together. One didn't directly dispute the, the original Metro timeline, but said it may not be accurate. But then they came out with something that was much more definitive. I believe that was yesterday uh, on Thursday. And so it was clear that, that Metro was going to have to address it. And, and Lombardo went out of his way to say that he agrees with MGM's statement and that the, the discrepancy is essentially, and correct me if I'm wrong, Megan, that 
that uh, the security guard, uh, Jesus Campos, essentially got to the door of Paddock's room at 9.59, but no shooting occurred until 10.05. And so I think, I think that, and this, this, is, this is my conclusion from all of what's gone on, is that MGM was worried that they were going to look like they hadn't contacted Metro in, in, until too much time had elapsed. And Metro was concerned that, look, it looks like they didn't get there uh, for, for a large amount of time. And now they're both on the same page, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's been the big concern. And, you know, and that's one thing that Sheriff Lombardo has been mentioning time and time again is we did everything we could do. We got there as fast as we can. Um, one of the points he's reiterated is there have been questions of, well, why did it take so long for them to actually breach the door of the suspect's room? And the reason he's explained is that no active shooting was happening at that time. The shooting had stopped by the time they got there, which means the different protocols go into place when it's not an active shooter situation. You wait for backup, things like that. So the one thing he's reiterated time and time again is we did exactly as much as we could do. Um, but like you mentioned, obviously MGM Resorts is concerned about this perception that they possibly did not do enough or that the security guard didn't respond promptly enough, which has not been the case. Um, and neither side has said that that's the case. Well, this is America. There are going to be lawsuits. They're going to be based on the response times. They're going to be based on how did the guy get this arsenal uh, up uh, until that room. But one of the things that struck me about this news conference and and, and something too, uh, uh, Michelle, that you tweeted, I think, on your way here, it's just the human cost here. And the fact that this was all coming home to the sheriff who got very emotional at this news conference and talked about, I think, three uh, three of his officers who were, who were involved in this. And you mentioned something uh, that you saw that I actually, I got a little emotional when I saw your tweet. What did you see on the way here at Sunrise Hospital? Yeah, Sunrise Hospital, um, which more than a dozen people that were taken there died. Um, they have a marquee now that is scrolling the names of every person that was killed in the incident. And it's, um, I was at this red light and the red light wasn't long enough to see the whole list of people that had been killed in, in the shooting. Um, so it's just, it's just vast, um, the amount of people that were, were affected by this. And, and yes, it was, it was emotional to see that, um, just to see, and, and you go around, I was driving closer to the strip today and, and, you know, every billboard is, is one of these Vegas strong billboards. So it's just, it's just widespread. It's affected the whole community. And, and unfortunately, and this was something else that came out today, and he didn't exactly say it, but he gave new numbers. Lombardo gave new numbers of the injured. I think it's up to 546, something like that now. I think uh, uh, 501, I think, have been been released. But he also strongly implied uh, that the death toll could go go above 58. And he, he paused. He wanted to be careful how he said it. God forbid. But 45 people. Uh, people should remember that number were critically wounded in this, right? Yeah. So I think we're we're concerned that there's there's more people that are are hanging on, but but may not make it through um, their critical condition and their ICU. Before we go on to uh, other stories, and I, w I want to talk about uh, the story that you that, that you wrote about earlier in the week, Michelle, about the attorney general's campaign. But uh, Megan, you you've been looking into, and you posted a story on the Nevada Independence website about where all the money is going to go, where it's coming from, the different funds that are set up, uh, because that's always a question after any kind of horrific, uh, uh, either either killing like this or natural disaster. How is the money uh, going to be dispersed? What did you find out? Right. So there have been a lot of questions. Obviously 
obviously the, the big fund that sort of everyone's been aware of is this Las Vegas Victims Fund started by Clark County Commissioner Steve Sisolak and Sheriff Joe Lombardo. Um, this has been sort of the main pot of money. You know, it's, it's raised, uh, you know, over $10 million very quickly in response to this. But there have been other funds, too. You know, um, MGM Resorts has started a fund. Um, Zappos has started a fund. There are all these other individual GoFundMe pages. So there's a lot of questions about who do I donate to, which is the fund. And questions of that still remain to a certain extent, but what process is starting right now is the process of getting everything ready to distribute those funds. And this is a long process. They say it takes about 90 days, but there's this national expert um, from Washington, D.C. His name's Kenneth Feinberg. He's been involved in, uh, after the Boston Marathon bombing, he was involved in helping distribute um, compensation awards to the victims of, of that tragedy. Um, he was involved in the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, helping with that. He's been involved in 9-11. Generally, he helps with these disaster compensation awards, so BP oil spill, that type of thing. So this is something he knows very well. And so he's actually going to be helping out here in Las Vegas with these the distribution of these awards. And the big thing he stressed to me is that you can have different funds collecting donations. In Boston, they had this thing called One Fund Boston. So everyone donated to this one fund that was the main pot of money. Um, and Orlando, there were multiple different places. And he said, that's fine. You can collect donations different places. But the important thing is that all those funds get on the same page and pool their resources into the final fund from which all the money is eventually allocated to victims. And that's because you don't want you don't want each fund trying to distribute money to victims on their own and you don't know if this person's got paid or that person has gotten paid. So you want it to just be coming from one place. And there's sort of these strict rules and protocols that are developed out of it. And he's actually going to be working with the National Center for Victims of Crime. They're going to be responsible for the vetting of this. They actually were in, they did this in Orlando. They were in direct communication with the FBI. The FBI has to tell them, yes, this person was a victim. We've spoken with them. We've taken their account. If they're not on the FBI's list, the FBI will actually send someone out to the person's house to verify the claim. So it's this sort of very um, orderly process. Uh, so the question is whether all the funds that are established right now are going to you know, buy into this eventual end one fund where all the resources will be pulled. And so we'll have to see how that develops in the, the coming weeks and, and months. Because you, you do have, you know, you have like MGM has given $3 million. You have SANS has set up their own fund for $4 million. I, I think has it UFC or their Fertitas have given a million dollars to this fund. I guess what some people might wonder, uh, Megan, I don't want to dwell on this too long, but uh, some people are, are they're going to be families who are going to want to be have some compensation probably they're going to be people who were injured uh, who were maybe not quote unquote that badly injured and then there'll be people who have maybe life-changing uh, injuries who makes the decisions on, on on the on the amount of money do we know right and so that's something that Ken Feinberg has been involved with uh, in Orlando in Boston is developing this protocol and it's I mean it's a really impossible task but this is the task that he has done and, and will do again Ultimately, for Las subjective, Vegas. right, to some extent? Ultimately, yeah. You have to figure out how much money you think you're going to have. You develop different categories. I know in Orlando, he was saying their criteria was that you had to be actually inside the nightclub. So if you went out to the valet to go get your car, you know, you still may be affected by this incident, but you weren't inside the building and so you didn't get an award. But there was a certain amount you get if you were simply at the event. There was an event if you got injured. There's an amount that's given to the family members of people who passed away. And it's just this impossible, again, task of dividing up all the resources. Um, but you're right. It is somewhat subjective. You have to figure out how much money you're going to have and, and try and put a number on this 
unmeasurably horrific event and and all these consequences that have come out of it. You know, I don't know about you guys. Uh, I don't want to get too personal here, but but in the heat of the journalism when we were all covering this, I mean, we were all working very hard and it's hard to step back, but it seems, for me at least, the further in time that we get away from this, the more you start thinking about it. You talk about things that you just saw there. Uh, Michelle, you talk about these victims and they're, they're going to be, and la later on, at the end of the podcast, Michelle, I want to talk, want you to talk about a story that you're working on, which I think is really uh, going to be poignant about what's going on. But it just seems like there's this, uh, it, it's all starting to come home. I mean, did, did, are you feeling that way a little bit too? Yeah, I think, um, you know, immediately after it happened, the day, the day we were running around to hospitals, um, it felt abstract. It felt like an assignment. Numbers were numbers. And I think as you get further out and you just, it sinks in the gravity of what just happened. It, it's almost like it gets harder as you as you get further away. And um, that was one thing, and I'll talk about this at the end of the podcast, but experts are saying, this is not over, you know, when when we're two weeks out and, and it's not the maybe the top news story on, on the national news. People are going to live with this for, for so long and, and it's okay to, um, and even if you were not affected, um, even if you were not in the concert venue, you know, these experts are saying, you your pain is is legitimate. You know, I mean, you were you were affected. You're seeing these images. So I think that was one of the big takeaways that this this has affected really everybody. And it's okay to, to feel sad and, and depressed and have really traumatic symptoms from from something that maybe you were not personally there for. Yeah, you know, I've talked about before that my son, who was 22 years old, wanted to go to the concert, got sold out. His girlfriend really tried hard to get... To, he has really been affected by this. He calls me every day, and he's like almost uh, uh, any other person who's not in our business and says, I heard this. I saw this on Facebook. Is that is that really true? And, and these kinds of things. And, and, and so... And he's just thinking about it a lot. He and his girlfriend have, like, made food and taken them down to the first response. He feels some connection to this. Like, a lot of people, I think, whether they were going to go or not, uh, I, you know, I long for the day when we don't have to talk about this story anymore. But as you said, I think it's going to go on for a while. And we still, and this is Lombardo's frustration to when you heard the FBI, uh, uh, special agent in charge, uh, Rouse, talk about how they deployed all these people here. They've gone, gone through, you know, hundreds of pieces of evidence. It's clear they just have no idea. Now, they haven't finished going through their electronics, but it's just, that's also just adding, I think, to people's pain in this. It's so confounding. Why did this guy do this, right? Yeah, and that's what one of these experts that's dealt with all, so many of these recent tragedies um, was saying this morning at this workshop I went to. You know, this has challenged all of our assumptions. You assume that you're going to go to a concert and you're going to be okay, and you have this sense of safety, and this just has shattered everything. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's, totally, totally normal, especially since we don't have uh, answers that are satisfying about why this man did what he did. I think it just adds to kind of the sense of, of just your world being sort of shaken. Uh, I, I want to talk about a story that uh, you wrote about, uh, Michelle, this week that uh, is not exactly directly related to this, but of course is being put in context with this, and that is the issue of the background checks uh, initiative in Nevada, which a lot of the national media is focusing on now because uh, we do have, you know, Nevada gun culture here. We did pass this background checks uh, measure uh, uh, by very close margin. Uh, 16 or 17 counties voted against it, but because Clark County voted, uh, I think, 100,000 vote margin, it passed. Uh, it has not been implemented. The, 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 the proponents have been very frustrated. And finally, this week, they took action. Yeah, so uh, 
the background check measure, since last December, Attorney General Adam Laxalt said, you know, uh, there's this logistical issue. We're, we're a state that does our own background checks. And so the FBI doesn't want to get involved now. It wants us to continue with that. And so it doesn't want to heed the ballot measures instruction that the FBI do these checks. So it's been at this impasse. Behind the scenes, of course, there's been action trying to compel the state to implement this ballot measure. There was earlier, <laughs> a couple weeks ago, a threat of a lawsuit. And yesterday, the lawsuit was actually filed. Basically, this uh, the group that advocated for the background checks uh, is accusing Governor Sandoval of inaction, saying that he had the ability to go negotiate something with the FBI to get past this impasse, that nine other states have done this. And so basically seeking a judge to order him to go talk to the FBI and and figure this out. Now, they've spent, um, I think it was something close to $13 million, the proponents of this background check measure spent. So it was a, it was a huge amount of money. A lot of effort went into to getting this passed. Of course, it narrowly passed. So um, obviously, they're still pushing to try to get it implemented. And right before this lawsuit was filed, this, this uh, uh, attorney general's opinion came out. The governor had asked for the attorney general's opinion. And some of the same issues that were raised actually in the lawsuit, right, are in that opinion. Yeah. So um, the opinion says that, of course, you know, the governor can do what he wants. He can go talk to the FBI and see if the FBI will, quote unquote, change its mind about this uh, this background check arrangement that's stalling the whole thing. But they say, you know, there's going to be problems. There's going to be if we switch over to let the FBI do some things. That's something that no other state has arranged quite like that. No, no other state has passed their own state background check and then required the FBI to do the check on it. So they say that's unique and unprecedented. Uh, they say it could potentially replace some of Nevada's stronger background checks with an FBI background check. And the problem is that, you know, the FBI's files are sometimes full of things that are are not quite up to date, not accurate. One example was, uh, you know, there's there's an OJ conviction from the 80s that was not in the um, FBI database. Um, and so it wasn't considered in the parole hearing. So the federal government's checks sometimes are not as comprehensive as the one that has all the state convictions, all the state court stuff. Um, so the attorney general's office raised that point that maybe we're going to disrupt this system. We're going to replace a superior check with an inferior check. You know, it's interesting that this is coming out now in, in this sense and that people should know the background of this is that Adam Laxalt, the attorney general, essentially was part of the campaign against uh, the background checks initiative. The governor came out against the background checks initiative, although he was not as vociferous as the attorney uh, general was. But I don't remember, and maybe one of you two can correct me, when the whole byplay went uh, between Laxalt and Sandoval after this passed. I don't remember it coming up. You can ask the FBI for, uh, you can ask for a partial uh, uh, point of context. Did any of that come up at that time? I mean, I, I think they were both so eager to find an out, I guess is what I'm saying, to, to, to not enforce this thing. I don't remember this being raised. Did it come up at the time? I don't remember there being a whole lot of anything after December 2016 right. when this opinion came out. And, and, you know, it comes out in the lawsuit from the proponents that they were supposedly at, you know, talking to Sandoval personally, um, you know, writing him these legal memorandums. They were doing things. I didn't, it wasn't out front. 
Um, but they were trying to push for a way forward on this. But but other than that, I mean, it was kind of just like, okay, we're done. This is unenforceable. This is not going forward. Yeah, it almost looked choreographed to me. I think I remember at the time, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was essentially Sandoval's Department of Public Safety that said, wait a second, how do we do this? Give us an opinion. Then Laxalt, almost, you know, I'm sure, okay, here we go. We can't enforce this. They give that to the P- DPS, and then Sandoval says, okay, we can't enforce it. Isn't that essentially what happened? Yeah, and there's, you know, some accusations from the proponents that, <laughs> you know, they both were, were out front against the measure. And so how can they, they're you biased. know, they're, they're maybe overcomplicating this. They're, they're going through steps that are unnecessary. And, of course, there's, you know, accusation. This is kind of a, a choreography uh, between the two. And, and no one really wants to take responsibility for for the background check measure going forward. It's going to be interesting to watch because a court's going to decide this. Now, we're going to come back to uh, the governor and the attorney general in, in just a moment. But I want to talk about, uh, you know, obviously there's other stories that are going on here, and there's a huge national story going on this week uh, 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 surrounding uh, a story that you've covered very closely, Megan, and that's uh, the repeal of Obamacare. We thought the bigger story was a few days ago, but that it turns out the biggest story came out late last night, and and and, and you posted a piece uh, this morning uh, uh, about that, and we got reaction from the governor. Talk about what's going on. Yes, yeah. So as soon as you think that all the efforts to get rid of the Affordable Care Act are, do- are gone, they're not. It never it never happens. It will it will continue forever. Yeah. So what happened this week? It actually they both things happened yesterday. It seems like it happened longer ago, but they actually one was early in the day and one was very late at night. Um, so what happened earlier in the day is Trump issued an executive order making some changes that could potentially undermine the Affordable Care Act. It basically would allow for these association health plans, which w- would allow smaller employers to sort of join together to purchase this type of insurance. It would be would have less requirements than is required under the Affordable Care Act right now. So the concern is that more people will go onto these plans, leave the individual market. Some of these people doing this might be younger, healthier. So you're going to leave the, the people on the individual market. It's going to be a, a sicker, older pool. Um, it also changes the requirements for these short-term health plans. Right now, you can only have them for three months. It's supposed to fill a short coverage gap, like if you're in between jobs or say you turn you know, 26 and you're off your parents' insurance and you need to get insurance really quick, it's supposed to be a short-term, you know, worst-case scenario type coverage just for, for the big things. And the president's executive order also directs um, the, the length of that to be extended from three months to 12 months. So the concern is that these provisions, the things included in the executive order, will undermine the Affordable Care Act by basically diverting, you know, younger, healthier people away from the individual market, therefore making it really expensive for insurers to insure the people who are left on the on the exchange and sort of make the whole Obamacare system collapse. The, the interesting thing to mention is that this has to go through the federal rulemaking process. That's a lengthy process. There are all these steps that have to be completed. So this isn't imminent. It would likely affect like the 2019 plan year, but it wouldn't up, uh, affect the upcoming um, 2018 plan year open enrollments beginning on November 1 for that. So that was sort of the the news, you know, and well, everyone you posted sort of, a story. Let yeah. me just stop you for a second. You posted a story about that yesterday. I guess yes. I thought it was two days ago. It shows you how compressed time uh, can be. And you had gotten some comments from the head of the exchange talking about this is injecting more uncertainty into an already volatile market. It was pretty big news in the sense that uh, this, you know, as you mentioned, the in, in continued attempts to unravel uh, the Affordable Care Act. But that didn't compare to what happened uh, late last night, right? Exactly. So what happened late last night is the White House confirmed report 
reports that the federal government would be ending these cost reduction um, payments, these these subsidies that are given out. Um, and basically, the purpose of these subsidies is it's uh, dollar amounts paid from the federal government to insurance companies to essentially subsidize the cost of providing health care to low-income individuals. So basically, it's supposed to make it more affordable for low-income people. So the, the money doesn't go directly to low-income people. It goes to the insurance companies, which is why you might have heard President Trump refer to this as a bailout for insurance companies, because the payments are technically going to insurance companies. But it's basically so the consumers, they just get a certain price. They're not interacting with this subsidy. They're just getting the price. That's it's a the, pass-through, essentially, is what it's intended exactly. to be. Yeah. And so what happened, um, there's been a lot of uncertainty over the last several months about, is the Trump administration going to continue making these payments? And every month, it's been waiting and watching to see, will it continue this month? Will it continue next month? And we've been waiting. So finally, the announcement comes last night that the Trump administration is ender, ending all of these payments. They will not be made moving forward. Um, that applies to this plan year. So they won't be made in October, November, December, the stopping immediately, and they won't be made moving forward. Uh, this is a big problem for a lot of um, insurance exchanges where rates have already been set. Like I mentioned, open enrollment is coming up in just a, a couple of weeks. And so the big problem is some insurance exchanges, some um, insurance divisions that set rates did not take into consideration that these payments would go away, which means they sort of underestimated everything. And now everything's being sort of thrown out of whack and, and sort of questions of, do we need to go back and reset rates? Will this delay open enrollment? All that kind of thing. Um, luckily for Nevada, the division of insurance had the foresight to, you know, assume that these payments weren't going to be made and calculate everything based on that. So everything had been moving forward with the assumption that these payments would not continue, that the federal government would move forward with canceling them at some point. They didn't know when. Um, and so the good thing is that uh, Nevada sort of prepared for that situation. So that means for the 2018 plan year, people probably won't see a lot of changes. If you were receiving these subsidies, you, you won't notice any big changes. The problem is moving forward. This still creates a lot of uncertainty for insurers, still injects more uncertainty in, into the federal marketplace. So the question more, again, like with the executive order is what this means long term. Are insurers going to want to return to the exchange and offer plans on the exchange for the 2019 plan year? And so all of that remains to be seen. And the governor, you know, came out, um, our colleague Riley Snyder caught up with him this morning and he was, you know, obviously not happy with this decision. He said, you know, it would devastate Nevada families, you know, said it was going to hurt kids and families. And he's been very critical of, of many of the Senate health care proposals that have come out this summer. Uh, really wanting to make sure that it doesn't hurt Nevadans, that Nevadans have access to affordable health care. So this has sort of been a priority for him. Um, so now he and other governors are trying to figure out what they can do. Obviously, he's the head of the National Governors Association, and he's been advocating for some sort of governor-led health care proposal to to fix this whole whole mess that's happened. You're calling the president's latest proposal devastating shows, again, uh, Brian Sandoval's odd campaign for a seat on the U.S. Supreme Court uh, while Donald Trump is, is president, because yet again, He's speaking out against the president. We have not heard a word, I don't think, yet from the senior senator, right, who has gotten really caught in this maelstrom of the health care debate, right? I have not seen one unless I missed it, but I have not checked in the last the, two hours. So yeah, Dean, Dean Heller has not commented on this, and I bet he doesn't want uh, to, to comment on this. But this is this is an interesting story to follow, and we'll, we'll be on it. Uh, speaking of the governor and the attorney general, uh, uh, Michelle, uh, uh, we uh, uh, Riley Snyder, who, who Megan mentioned, uh, found the website 
for, for Adam Laxalt's gubernatorial campaign, and the timing was, turned out to be horrific. It was the night uh, of, of, the, uh, of, of the October 1st uh, shooting, and uh, we, we prepared a story we, before we knew the shooting was coming we were gonna, because we knew it was on that website. It was taken down. We waited uh, a, a week until, until uh, uh, what we thought was a reasonable amount of time to, uh, to, to, to post something about it. But what, what was on that website and that has now caused an ongoing, including even as recently as this morning, when Riley Snyder got more quotes from the governor, the Laxalt versus Sandoval war. Yeah, so uh, the big thing that was on that website was that he wants to repeal the commerce tax, which is part of the tax package that Governor Sandoval ushered through the legislature in the 2015 session. The total thing was worth $1.1 billion. The commerce, is, the commerce tax is one piece of that. Let's um, tell people, just in case people don't know what the commerce tax is, because most people aren't affected by it. What does it do? It's a tax on large businesses that uh, make more than $4 million a year. It affects a little more than 5,000 Nevada businesses. Make, make Gross revenues we're, ta we're talking about. And they can also use uh, as a credit against their, their payroll tax, correct? Yeah, there's an arrangement where if you're paying the commerce tax, you get a credit on the modified business tax, which is the payroll tax that you pay on your employees. And so uh, th there has been no uh, evidence yet that this has had a huge impact on regular folks. Steve Hill from the Economic Development has, has actually praised uh, the tax. And yet uh, uh, Adam Laxalt on his website says he wants to repeal it. He wants to repeal the tax, um, which is interesting because uh, his one of his biggest supporters is State Senator Michael Roberson, who was instrumental in pushing that tax package through in 2015. It wouldn't have passed without him. I think we could, I mean, uh, he was, uh, the governor has described Michael Roberson as a warrior. That's the word he used in, in passing it. And one of his biggest supporters is essentially his unofficial running mate, right, as running for lieutenant governor. Yeah. And, um, you know, as late as August, he's been, you know, defending that vote and, and saying why we needed that vote. So it is interesting now that the person he's most supporting and is running on an unofficial ticket with is a wanting to repeal uh, the tax. And um, Sandoval has been pretty angry about this. He had some, some strong words to say earlier in the week and has continued to say this is a bad idea. This is going to hurt uh, people. And, and whoever is going to try to get rid of it needs to have a plan to backfill that money. Um, so this has continued. The, the two are on an the board of examiners uh, together. This is a, a panel that approves government contracts. On Tuesday, they had a meeting. They were both they were both at the meeting, but Adam Laxalt was on the, the phone, so we couldn't capture any sort of the interaction between those two. But it's it's been a tense week, presumably between those two. And and Laxalt's uh, uh, spokesman, I believe, confirmed uh, to the Review Journal that that is still his position. The website is still not up. Uh, he has changed his announcement now. It's going to be on November 1st. It's going to be interesting to see what he has to say then, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, before the shooting was going to happen, Monday morning, it was supposed to be the launch of this epic tour through all the rural counties. Um, he had a, you know, a slick website up. He had had like a three minute YouTube video describing his biography, you know, his roots, his plan for, for being governor. And I don't think very many people um, got to see that. That was taken down. That was replaced with a, a page that tells people where they can donate blood. So I think we're going to see, um, you know, in two weeks, how strong he is in this quest to repeal 
the commerce tax and, and what positions he takes on certain other issues. And how he feels about the governor's reaction. Maybe someone uh, will we'll ask him. Uh, we'll, we'll look forward to that. Um, uh, before, before we go, I, w- I want to talk specifically about one other story and then have a general conversation about it among the three of us, uh, Michelle. The story about Assemblyman Justin Watkins, who is a freshman uh, assemblyman, uh, you, you posted a story about he's decided not to run for re-election. Why is that? Yeah, so um, Assemblyman Justin Watkins, he's a freshman. He ran in Assembly District 35. This is southwest Las Vegas. This is the district that used to be um, held by stridently anti-tax Assemblyman Brent Jones, uh, the one who recruited a, a slate of candidates to, to to oppose the taxes. So Justin Watkins, you know, told us this week that he was not going to run for re-election. He said it was because it was just too hard on his family. He had uh, he has two daughters. At the time of the session, they were four and six. He took the extraordinary step to move the whole family up to Carson City. His wife was basically telecommuting. Uh, the whole time the girls went to a new school, um, so really had to uproot the whole family. He said his family was totally supportive of the idea of him going all by himself, living up in Carson City for four months of the year. But he said he didn't feel like as father, you know, his his number one responsibility. He couldn't miss that many days of the lives of his his elementary school age girls. You know, it's interesting, uh, and Megan, this was your first session that, that, that you covered. This, To me, this story, again, brings home the whole human element, especially of Southern Nevadans who have to leave their families or move their families up, up there uh, for four months. You hear a lot of talk up there, right? That, that he's not the only one who's not going to be back. Paul Anderson, very well-respected minority leader, is now leaving uh, in, in the assembly, leaving to, to, to work for, for the governor's office of economic development. You have others who either have announced they're not going to run or they're running for higher office or uh, they eventually will. I mean, this th- there was a human toll. I mean, people listening to this podcast uh, probably don't know these legislators are essentially paid nothing, right? Yeah, they're essentially paid nothing. You know, they, they have to essentially move their lives up to Carson City. You know, many of the Southern Nevada legislators fly home on the weekends, but, you know, not, not everyone can necessarily afford that. You know, those flights can be expensive. Um, but if you want to go home and see your family, that's the only way to do it. You know, a lot of those legislators have young kids. I mean, even Assembly Speaker Jason Frierson has young kids. You know, they're all just regular people with, with regular jobs. You know, a lot of them I know will take leaves of absence from whatever it is that they're doing, but you really do have to have the support of both your, you know, your employer and your family to make that commitment to to really go and take on a different job for for those 120 days, sort of put the rest of your life on hold. Yeah, it's it's tough because you know most people, especially in Southern Nevada, Carson City's so remote, they don't really follow it that closely unless they're reading the Nevada Independent every day, which they should be. Uh, but but my, my, I guess my serious point is 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 that you know, listen. The, the stuff that they do poorly is the stuff that's going to make quote-unquote news, right? But these these are human beings. Justin Watkins, his partner died right before the session began. He's got, you know, he's got a family. He's taken time away from his law practice for four months. It's costing his young family a lot of money. His story's not unique. That's the issue, right? Yeah, and I think um, when I talked with him during the session, he had kind of expressed a desire, you know, I wish I could show other people that, uh, you know, a diverse group of people can do this. Parents and, and everything can can be a representative, but it's it's a lot harder if you're if you're a parent to be a legislative representative, and especially if you're one from Southern Nevada. Um, another example is Senator Patty Farley, who is in the middle of um, adopting her uh, four nieces and nephews as foster children, and if you can just imagine, you know, she has two children 
already and then now she's bringing four more children into her home and she's a single mom so um and she brought those kids up to the session we saw them in the building uh, relatively often too yeah so uh you know you the, legisla the legislative session is no respecter of boundaries. I mean, l meetings go till 2 a.m. And, and all hours of the night, things get called at the last minute. You have to be on call all the time. Lobbyists are always at your door. So uh, it's, it's really not um, an easy thing to do, probably for, for anybody and especially if you have young kids young and they've kids, got their yeah. schedules. I think that's right. And Patty Farley's a completely different story. She's not running again. She's in the middle of this recall. She did a uh, stunning interview this week on, on, on KNPR and she and Michael Roberson again are getting getting into it uh, publicly. That's for a different uh, podcast perhaps. Let's 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 wrap up by uh, telling uh, uh, our lucky listeners uh, what's coming uh, 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 from, from you guys. Megan, what are you working on? Speaking so, of the session. <laughs> yeah, so it never, my coverage <laughs> of the, the insulin transparency bill never ends. Um, if our listeners remember, there was a bill originally sponsored by Democratic Senator Ivana Kinsella that was then morphed into this bill from Republican Senator Michael Roberson, um, basically puts a lot of transparency requirements on insulin pricing, both on manufacturers and the middlemen in the drug pricing process known as pharmacy benefit managers. There's some other requirements in there, too. It does a lot. But the pharmaceutical industry, not to anyone's surprise, is challenging this law in court. They're unhappy with the transparency mandates. It requires... Uh, companies will be required to disclose a lot of information if their the prices of their drugs, insulin, essential diabetes drugs, increases by above a certain amount. They'll have to disclose this information to the state. They're worried about keeping that information secret. They want to keep their competitive advantage, so they're worried about this information being disclosed. So they have sued over the constitutionality of this law in federal court. They say it violates several provisions of the Constitution and is preempted by federal, federal law as well, federal um, trade secret law. So there are a lot of questions that remain. And, and the thing coming up is that there is a hearing next Tuesday where the pharmaceutical industry is basically asked that the court enjoin the implementation of this law. They stop it, um, let the let the court proceedings move forward, figure out whether or not this is constitutional before the state moves forward with implementation. So we're going to find out about that. Uh, but there's a lot going on there. The attorney general is defending both the governor and the director of the Department of Health and Human Services, who are the two original named defendants in the suit. But the legislature has gotten itself involved. And now the Culinary Health Fund, which is the, the health fund for um, the culinary union, the, the obviously very big politically powerful union representing hotel workers here. Um, they they want to get involved. It's unclear whether or not the judge is going to let them, but there are a lot of a lot of very Nevada interests at play, a lot of uh, fractures and friction coming out that we see in the political arena that is now sort of working its way into these uh, court filings. So if anyone does not want to read those court filings, but you want to read <laughs> what your takeaway should be from it, you can check the Nevada Independence website on Sunday, and yeah. I will have that for you guys. She just promised she was going to get it done on Sunday, and now, <laughs> now you heard that too, uh, Michelle. And there's there's some there's some really promise. stunning language in some of those briefs. So I, I urge people. Uh, if you're interested in that issue, to take a look at that story. Uh, you're working on a couple things, Michelle. Let's talk about uh, uh, one you alluded to earlier, which which is that you've, you're, you're talking to some folks about uh, the mental health system and 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 what what to expect in in, in the aftermath of the shootings. Yeah, Jackie Valley, uh, our colleague, and I are working on a story, basically trying to explore. You know, Nevada is a state with basically the lowest ranking mental health system in the country. And here we are with this just enormous tragedy. 
And this is going to affect people for years to come. This is going to affect kids, uh, residents, doctors, everybody. So is the state prepared to respond? Um, one of the things I was I was at this morning was, was looking at how social workers, uh, especially the ones that are stationed in the schools, are learning from people who have been through this before, how they should work kids through these situations, what signs um, they're going to be seeing. Uh, there were warnings that you know, maybe kids' academic performance is going to take a dip just because teachers are are so affected by this and students are so affected by this. So um, we'll have a story on um, hopefully Sunday. At some point. At some, at some, <laughs> to see, explore You that. guys got to learn to say at some point. Because <laughs> uh, once an editor hears a day, it's it's locked in. Uh, real, real quickly, uh, the governor's going on, on a trip on, on Saturday. Uh, where's he going? He's going to Poland. Um, so this is the governor's second time to Poland, but the states, gosh, they've been there so many times, more than a dozen times. Why Poland? Um, that's the question that will be answered in the story. Ah. <laughs> um, but basically, Nevada has a very special relationship with Poland. Poland's been the one to really like latch on to our efforts uh, to go over there. There's been actually quite a bit of businesses from Poland that are now locating in Nevada. Um, there's a real strong unique relationship there. Uh, it's obviously a former communist country and has had this uh, resurgence and, an, you know, an eagerness to, to build business. So some people compare the, to Nevada, which is emerging from the recession and, and with kind of a newfound um, entrepreneurial spirit. When's that story coming? That's supposed to come on Saturday. On Saturday. All right. Uh, Megan and Michelle, thanks for coming on the podcast this week. It was a great discussion. And thanks to everybody uh, for listening to this ish edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you think of our discussion. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us at ideas at the nvindy.com. And don't forget to tell all your friends and have them check out the site, too, the NevadaIndependent.com. You can also go on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, please, and tell your friends to do that, too. You can find us on other platforms, including Google Play. I want, as always, uh, to thank our wonderful hosts here at KUNV for, for uh, helping us produce this podcast uh, on campus. And as always, of course, thanks to Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer, who makes some of us, at least, all sound... Podcast smooth. It wasn't your best effort, <laughs> ladies, but we'll, we'll let it go. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters. We'll talk to you next week.